Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. Access matters. A podcast of Ira with Janine Stanley. Who is Janine Stanley anyway? And why is she talking to you about access? That's a very good question. Welcome to Access Matters. I'm Janine Stanley, Ira's Director of Customer Success and Engagement. And I'm one of those people who really likes new technology. I may not be a programmer, I may not be a designer, but I really like new gadgets. And I find it really interesting to see the effect that new technology can have on people, both positive and, well, negative, but interesting nonetheless. I've always been a gadget person and a technology person. And growing up with a visual impairment, that journey started early at about eight years old when I got my first closed-circuit TV, one of the first ones used in a school setting way back in the dark ages. My technology journey really kicked into high gear, though, in 1988 when I got my first computer with a screen reader. As I lost more of my vision, I was unable to pass, as I had been doing for most of my life, as cited, and finally had to admit, guess what? You are not only visually impaired, but legally blind. That was a big step. That big step carried me into a huge part of my life, which involved technology and, at the very same time, use of a guide dog. Now, what do the two have in common? Well, they're both ways to access the world. That's what it's all about here, accessing the world. I'm working with my ninth guide dog, a golden retriever named Curtis from The Seeing Eye, and you will occasionally hear him in the background here in my home office in Columbus, Ohio. What do talking computers, guide dogs, white canes, apps, mobile phones, all of that have in common? They are ways that we as blind and low vision people have access to information about the world. One of the first things that frustrated me as I lost my sight was the inability to read and write. So one of the very first things that I tried to do was to figure out through technology how I might be able to do these things again. I owned a lot of tape recorders. I also started the journey toward learning Braille and began to look into computer technology for the ability to read and write. Well, that was all well and good, but none of that happens in a vacuum. And that's why for this first episode of Access Matters, I wanted to tell you about community. We all hear that term these days, but what does it really mean? It means a group of people that share some common aspects of life. It can be where they live. It can be something about their ethnic identity, whatever the case may be. I needed to find my people. And I found them over the years in the two major organizations of the blind here in the United States. And of is an important term. Hopefully throughout this podcast, I'll point out to you why of is more important than for. I decided for this first episode, we take a look at what access really means and why it does matter from the very people that access serves. I'll be talking with Clark Rockville of the American Council of the Blind and Mark Riccobono from the National Federation of the Blind about why access matters. My name is Clark Rockfall. I am the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. 
also known as ACB. I have been in this role for four years. I am based out of our national office in Alexandria, Virginia. How I came to ACB in this role is a little bit of a circuitous route. My education is in political science and economics. I started my career doing public policy work in Washington, D.C. at Verizon Communications. And that was actually my first introduction to ACB, was while working at Verizon and ACB at the time, Eric Bridges, was negotiating the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. Uh, So that was a a great learning experience for me. Uh, Following my time at Verizon, I left Washington, D.C. to race and train as a Paralympian representing the United States full-time out in Colorado. And then when I re-entered the workforce and moved back to the East Coast, Uh, I got a public policy position with National Industries for the Blind, reconnected with uh, other folks in the advocacy space, and when a position became open at the American Council of the Blind, I applied back in end of 2018, early 2019, and the rest is history. Mark Riccobono, President, National Federation of the Blind. Well, I'll give you the short version because, you know, now that I've been a member of the National Federation of the Blind since 1996, there is quite a story to my journey. But I'll say it like this. Before 1996, uh, I was 20 years old at the time. I, I didn't know I was a blind person. I knew I couldn't see so well. I was diagnosed as being legally blind at age five with glaucoma and aniridia, but uh, my parents just didn't have any experience with blindness. And because I had some remaining vision, frankly, the professionals mostly were content to let me get by. And I I faked it. I was the best at faking it. And it made people happy when I saw stuff, so I faked it. Fast forward to, uh, I was a, a college student at the University of Wisconsin. I was in my sophomore year, and I really started hitting a wall. And I started looking around there. Somebody has to know what to do about this. And fortunately for me, I received a scholarship from the National Federation of the Blind of Wisconsin. I don't remember how much money it was. The money really wasn't important. What they did is they said, get on a plane and go to the convention in Anaheim, California. And that's really where things turned around for me. And I could say a lot more about that, but but mostly to say I realized very quickly and going forward that, you know, whatever I decide to do with my career in life, that the organized blind movement is really essential to uh, my success as an individual, but also our success as blind individuals, that really nothing significant has happened without um, the power of working together in the organized blind movement. So that's where I spend my time and passion in and amongst all my other interests. How would you define the word access? Clark Rockfall. I actually looked up a a dictionary definition of access. And the the definition that the dictionary provided, I thought was pretty interesting, but also pretty pretty limited. And this was just a search done in my uh, favorite search engine. But it said that access is a means of providing entrance. For example, the staircase provides access to the door. It's like, okay, so access gets you into a place, but I don't think that that's enough for a definition of access. I think you need to have inclusion. So not only do you need to have 
a door. Uh, but you need inclusion along with access as well to ensure that that door is open. It hasn't been locked or barred from the inside and that folks are able to uh, and welcomed to go through that door. Mark Riccobono. Well, uh, for me, uh, access is uh, about having an easy and uh, effective uh, method of getting at the product, service, space that uh, you're trying to, to get to. And uh, equal access for me means that you can do that in the same manner and with the same degree of ease as everybody else. It, it, it's one thing to say, yeah, I, I can access that. But if it takes, just to go with websites, you know, if it, it takes an extra five minutes because you have to hunt very hard for the unlabeled button and which one is the correct one, you know, that's not ease of access. That's not equal access. So that's how I think about access. Here in the United States, as in many parts of the world, quote-unquote access is controlled or defined by law. How do you think that's had an effect on businesses? They have all of these uh, federal laws that they must obey. How do, what effect do you think that's had on businesses? Mark Riccobono. I think that you know the business community, uh, un unfortunately, has not been tightly tied into the uh, disability rights community. And so it's built up an understanding that uh, the laws that we have are an extra layer to the business community, when in fact, uh, I believe that the accessibility that's built into the laws, primarily the Americans with Disabilities Act, and also uh, in most states, white cane laws that were spearheaded by the National Federation of the Blind, it, those are actually uh, tools for businesses to um, be guided to uh, making their products and services more accessible. But unfortunately, I think so often the business community has pitched it as a, a, a burden and extra and has trained uh, the business community on how to limit and how to meet the bare minimum of um, the law. Having said that, I think uh, there is also another side to it, which is there's a lot of players in the business community who recognize that people with disabilities are important customers. And so they work to not just meet the spirit of the law, but exceed the requirements of the law. And that's where I think as customers, we should put our dollars as people with disabilities, put our dollars and energy into those businesses that really value our contribution. And we can't discount the value of the commerce that happens when there is access, right? Clark Rockfall. I think it was Accenture in 2018 that said just 1% increase in employment of people with disabilities would translate to $25 billion of growth in economic activity and the growth in the gross domestic product. Um, so. Yes, 
People with disabilities have jobs. Yes, people with disabilities have money. Some folks with disabilities may be on uh, fixed income, whether it's Social Security or other uh, federal assistance programs. But people with disabilities also have money that they have earned on their own through blood, sweat, and tears. And we like spending it, just like everyone else. McKinsey and Company, a highly respected global management and consulting firm, has published a new report, Bridging Another Digital Divide, Accessibility for Blind and Low Vision Consumers. In this new report, participants of several focus groups doubt that they will shift their loyalty as customers to companies and organizations that feature accessibility. Clark Rockfall. ACB being a membership organization of people who are blind, low vision, deaf blind, I'm primarily going to focus on at access for our membership, right? I, there are certain obligations that businesses have when it comes to physical access. You know, uh, ensuring that there are ramps, uh, doorways that are wide enough for a wheelchair to enter, having uh, elevators in addition to staircases or uh, zero entry if we're talking about you know, bathrooms, showers, locker rooms, things like that. Uh, but when it comes to access for people who are blind, low vision, and deafblind, yes, you need to be able to access a business, and with a service animal, if you so choose. I, I know I'm in the, the company of uh, a very staunch service animal handler advocate here. Signage, uh, whether it's on a wall, in an, in an elevator bank, what that comes down to is effective communications, right? So the, the Americans with Disabilities Act talks about effective communication, for people with disabilities. So for people who are blind, low vision, deafblind, you need a, a business needs to be able to communicate um, their goods and services with that individual. Let's get down to it. I asked my two distinguished guests, why does access matter? Mark Riccobono. <laughs> well, uh, you know, first and foremost, access matters because we know that society is better when we can take full advantage of the skills, talents, contributions that everybody has to offer. It's not simply about uh, uh, allowing someone in a door or allowing someone to to participate. It's about the contributions, and I think that's so often when I think about uh, blind people and uh, our role in society, it, it's not simply that we're looking for access because uh, access is what we want, but the fact of the matter is we want to give back to society too. We don't want to receive charity. And unfortunately, a lot of people look at access as a charity measure, but that's really not what it is. It's about making sure that we can empower the contributions of everybody in society. We need the talents of all the people we have. We need to be able to empower as many people as possible, regardless of whether they're, the barriers that they face are related to disability or socioeconomic status or race. You know, if we can 
can break down those barriers, we have a better shot of getting the contributions that people have. And so that's the narrative that I really think is exciting is when we can can flip from talking about how to provide access to what are people contributing and how are we empowering those contributions. Clark Rockfall. Just a quick story. When I would, when I was in college completing my undergrad, I had the opportunity to study abroad internationally. And I was going to be traveling alone with airports and airlines for the first time. Never done this before. And when uh, my parents and I reached out to the airline and asked, you know, what should I do? Do they offer assistance? And this was 2004. The customer service agent responded, well, you can rely on the kindness of strangers. Oh, boy. You suddenly became Scarlett O'Hara and... (laughs) I mean, this is why uh, visual interpretation and having an option like remote visual interpretation is so important. There's an obligation for businesses, including airlines and airports, to offer assistance for people with disabilities and people who are blind, low vision, and deafblind. Sometimes, despite their best efforts, something gets lost in translation, or the limited resources that are available are overtaxed. And other times you encounter the situations like I just described, where somebody does not know their obligation. And even if you're the best advocate in the world and your plane is leaving at a set time or you need to catch a train or you have a job interview, maybe that's not the time that you need to solve a systemic problem in the world, right? You're also an individual trying to live your life the best you can. So having an additional option is a great, a great resource. Having as many tools uh, in your toolbox at your disposal is, is always the best case scenario, right? And the great thing is that now we, as people with disabilities, have a toolbox, not just one tool. Like maybe we had, even in the early 2000s, you might have had a smartphone, but it wasn't quite as smart as your phone and its associated apps might be now. Let's touch on the scope of access, being that some of us have smartphones, some of us would not live without our smartphones and all of the things that we do with them, but there is a gap. What thoughts do you have about access as it relates to the scope of people that are participating in you know, society as we know it today? Clark Rockfall. Sure. So... I think access and inclusion is uh, just as important regardless of where somebody is in their lives, whether you are a student, a child, a parent, or an older American or older person with vision loss. uh, At any point, access is critical to your health, your wellness, your you know, your well-being. And for people who are older, many of the access barriers remain the same, uh, but there are also additional considerations to take into account. Certainly, we at ACB want the 
older individuals with blindness in our population or the older individuals with vision loss to be able to live independently in the community of their choice, right? We don't want somebody who ages into vision loss uh, to need, for them to need to uproot from their support network, their local community, and certainly areas that they have grown accustomed to, mental maps that they have built. There are additional considerations such as technology access for those who are older. Adjusting to vision loss is, is no simple task, right? I mean, I have uh, Lieber's congenital amaurosis, which is a degenerative eye condition. So and my vision has slowly deteriorated over time. And as it deteriorated, I've had to use uh, different tools and resources to be as effective or as productive as I was before. And I think as, as we get older, the ability to learn new tools, sometimes it doesn't come as second nature as when we are younger. Um, so in, in general, I think that we have uh, individuals in uh, not just the blind and low vision population, but the general population that find it difficult to adopt new technologies. A smartphone is very different than the phones that they've grown accustomed to. So there's, there's a learning curve just in the technology itself. Is that asking them to learn something new that's insurmountable? Or is this a tool that can help them along that journey and provide assistance and access as they learn to use it, as well as as they uh, do other tasks that they were previously able to do uh, you know, with, without an additional tool or resource? Mark Riccobono. We want to empower uh, blind people to get the technology they need. So we have been for a number of uh, years now promoting the Access Technology Affordability Act, which would create a refundable tax credit for blind people. So regardless of whether you have any income, you could use this tax credit. You could go spend your own money to buy Access Technology, and then uh, you could get it refunded by the government. It's a start. We don't think it's the perfect model, but we think it's a very good model. And a, a very important point is it's not the government giving you charity. You still have to go spend your own money, but it's empowering blind people to get the access technology supports they need. So there's much more I could talk about. I think what's important is it's a multi-pronged approach that there's not a silver bullet to raising the standards for equal access in society. Can you give me a couple words just about built-in accessibility versus bolted-on accessibility? What's the difference, and why is it important to build it in? Clark Rockfall. I guess before I answer your question specifically, I'll I'll talk about the the growing focus over, uh, say, the past five years on, like, society-wide, right, on... Uh, diversity and inclusion. And then that became diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, You know, at at ACB, we would certainly argue that uh, disability falls in diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it's not always been the case that 
people with disability have found a home in the the social equity movement. Well, here in the past couple of years, we've we've added an A to DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and afterthought. Because that's what it feels like when accessibility is bolted on at the end. Um, it feels like inclusion of people with disabilities has been an afterthought. And accessibility um, was, was not important or, or was not considered through the design, testing, and development of a product or service. I think bolt-on, there are instances or times where a bolt-on solution can be a short-term fix to a long-term problem. But the real goal is accessibility and inclusion by design, where inclusion of people with disabilities and accessibility is built into the the fabric of our society and our ecosystem so that it's considered when designing, testing, and implementing goods, products, or services. A bolt-on solution can help us uh, remediate some problems in the short term before we get to a more complete built-in solution. A built-in solution will often be less expensive to the entity that's providing it because they don't need to retrofit or remediate or augment the service that they're already providing. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase a gentleman that I just heard at a a conference because I really liked it, so I'm going to steal it. But he said, you know, when when we design for the edges, uh, say the the 20% of the population, that are traditionally unserved, then you get the middle 80% for free. But if we are, if we're designing, and that would be a built-in solution, right? It's a, it's already built in to designing for the 20% at the edges that you get the 80% in the middle. But if you're only designing for that 80% in the middle, then you need to add a bolt-on solution to get that additional 20% that's re- that's left unserved. Mark Riccobano. You know, to put it very simply, we know from, from all other uh, contexts that it's always better to, to plan for accessibility ahead of time as opposed to trying to slide it in as an addition later. And the, the best example that I, I think hits home with people is elevators, right? I mean, first of all, if you have uh, a, a multi-story building today, you would never build it today without an elevator for many reasons. One of them is, you know, the elevator makes the upper floors much more functional, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but of course it provides accessibility. Now, you you know, wouldn't build a five-story building today and uh, then start to, to outfit it and then think, oh, elevator, that we should have done that. You could still do it, but it's going to be much more expensive. You're going to have to make a lot of headache decisions about uh, how to integrate it into the existing structure. And frankly, it's probably going to be less functional and usable to everybody than it would have been had it was it part of the original design. 
So we know this all sorts of areas, whether it's uh, the digital environment, the built environment, planning out services that if we're if we do a deep dive and make sure that we're really creating use cases and building the features, planning for all people to uh, take advantage of these things, it's just going to be better. It doesn't mean that it's easier always because, you know, building especially new stuff is is challenging. Innovation is challenging. But in the long run, it's always going to be better than trying to retrofit it later. That was a lot of information from two very experienced gentlemen in the field of advocacy and accessibility. In the end, what the heck did it all mean? Well, I have thoughts. From my lovely patio here in suburbia, I have thoughts. Why does access matter? I think it all boils down to not just that it's the right thing to do, not just that we as people with disabilities just want to live our lives like everyone else, maybe not be noticed as much, but it's about the fact that people are inherently good, I think, and people really want to provide access. They maybe either don't know how or have some other stumbling block in the way. I'm hoping through this podcast to show you how some organizations, businesses, governments, etc., have gotten around those stumbling blocks and felt good about all of their customers having a good experience with their business. Clark and Mark both talked about the economics of people with disabilities, not from the standpoint of how much we cost, which seems to be a common narrative, but how much we contribute or would contribute if things were accessible. It's really easy to see the bad side, to only think about the bad players in the disability space, to wonder how much things are gonna cost if you get sued because you're not quote unquote accessible. Well, as Clark paraphrased, if you design for that outer 20%, the other 80% come along with you that's absolutely true. And we found it here at IRA whenever we are designing our software and our interactions with our agents. It just makes sense. I think you're gonna to find too, that as an organization, you'll go into interactions with people with disabilities without as much stress. Oh, am I gonna say the wrong thing? Oh, am I gonna do the wrong thing? Oh, I already spent millions of dollars in quote-unquote, accessibility improvements, and you're still complaining? What? Well, there's a really easy way to solve that, folks. Include people from the beginning. Clark and Mark both mentioned this in our discussion of built-in versus bolted-on. It really is so much easier to include people with disabilities at the table with a real voice rather than assuming what you think someone might need. That's it from here. Now, let's hear about how to contact Clark and Mark. So Clark, how can people learn more about the American Council of the Blind? Where, how can we contact you and what's, what's up next for ACB? The best way to contact as well as learn about the American Council of the Blind is by visiting our website 
at acb.org. If you'd like to reach out to me or my colleague Swatha Nandakumar on the Advocacy and Governmental Affairs team at ACB, you can email us at advocacy at acb.org. Of course, a big thing coming up for ACB is our annual conference and convention, which will take place uh, virtual, hybrid, and in-person. The in-person component will be July 1st through 6th in Schaumburg, Illinois. We have the ACB Media Network as well as the ACB Community. So I'd always like to to plug acbmedia.org where you can listen to or live stream our internet radio service. But a lot of these programs from ACB Media are also turned into podcasts. To finish up our conversation here, the National Federation of the Blind has tremendous outreach throughout the country through your various state chapters and special interest divisions. Tell us a little bit about what you offer to the community in terms of outreach, in terms of programming, and that big old convention you all are having in July. Mark Riccobono. So first of all, I'd say what we offer to the community is community. We are the community. I like to say the most important word in our name is of. We are an organization of, by, and for blind people run by blind people. And so uh, at, at our core, we are a membership organization and anybody is welcome to join our organization. Most people join at the local level through a local chapter or state affiliate. Some people do join through one of our national divisions, but again, our our activities are are generated locally um, really from the ground up. And our uh, membership comes together annually at our national convention. Our convention is the largest gathering of blind people anywhere in the world on an annual basis. It, It is the heartbeat of what we do. Blind people own the place and we uh, have conversations some formal like in our resolutions committee some informal in the hallway talking about you know what are we going to do with this ai stuff and how is it going to impact us and what kind of access do we want here and there what do we want to ask for and what don't we want to ask for from society and where do we want to contribute our convention is this year in Houston, Texas, from July 1 to July 6. We also, by the way, have a virtual convention experience, which is free. You can register for that and experience uh, some of the convention. Uh, you are eligible for door prizes. You can get exposure to some of the convention meetings. It's not the same by any stretch as being there in person, but it's a good way to plug in. I would um, encourage people to check out our website, uh, which is just NFB, as in National Federation of the Blind, nfb.org, where you can find um, really thousands of pages of information, including our flagship publication, the Braille Monitor, our Nations Blind podcast, our blog, uh, information about events coming up, including the convention, which you can find at nfb.org slash convention and then you can go to our join us uh, section where you can find your local state affiliate and we would encourage you to to come check us out 
we are the organized blind movement and we need more blind voices in that movement and so um, please come offer your perspectives because that's what makes us stronger thank you for listening to our first episode of access matters it's been a pleasure to introduce you to my world stay tuned we'll be here bi-weekly on youtube if you subscribe to Ira's channel, you'll get announcements when the podcast comes out. An audio version of this podcast will also be available on our podcast channel. Look for links in the show notes. You've been listening to Access Matters with Janine Stanley. This podcast is a production of Ira Tech Corp. To learn more about visual interpreting, visit our website http colon slash slash ira.io or email us at access at ira.io.